Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. If you are a homeowner, and even if you're not, if you're a renter, you know that a big issue in the Bay Area are termites. Um, termites in your attic, subterranean termites, we just had to have treated. Didn't know, know, did not know there were subterranean termites, but they drill into the they, uh, when you have it treated, they drill into your cement and your concrete, and they get into deep into the foundation to treat for these subterranean termites, and, and then you have to tent your house before you move in and have to do it about every 10 years, and it's just kind of a mess, kind of a hassle, but the reason why it's so, such a problem is because you can have a house that's otherwise strong. You can have strong electrical system. You can have a strong HVAC system. You can have good foundation, and yet a house that is in trouble because you have not cared for something that appears that, that doesn't appear to be a big problem because you can't see it every day. And that's termites. And you have an issue similar to that in these churches that we've been looking at in Revelation 2 and then Revelation 3 in a, a few weeks. In that you have a situation where there is a church that is otherwise strong. We'll see today that we're actually dealing with a church that has a number of good qualities, and yet there's something insidious in this church, threatening to destroy it, and actually something that's making them liable to Jesus's judgment, believe it or not. So we're going to look at the church of Thyatira. It's a church that's otherwise strong, and yet Jesus is going to tell them that he has something against them. As you've noticed from a few weeks ago, Jesus is presented as in a certain way, and each of those qualities are expressed in the various letters. In this case, we have the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. Jesus is described in chapter 1 in this way, with multiple different descriptions of who he is and what he is like, describing his power, his character, his authority. And in verse 14 in chapter 1, it says, The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze. And then Jesus is going to speak that way, specifically now describing himself in verse 18 as the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. And we have to ask, just remind ourselves, what is he talking about here? Why is he describing himself this way? He's describing himself this way, this eyes like a flame of fire, Jesus can see into the inner workings of the human heart, the inner workings of the church. They may have a name as being alive, as the later church will see, but Jesus can see that they are, in fact, dead. They can be a church that is full of um, ministry and discernment and yet be lacking love. Jesus can see that. And he can bring judgment, which is what brings us to the expression of he has feet like burnished bronze. Jesus has the power and the authority to walk in and out of his church, walk through his church, and make discerning uh, application and notice certain things about that church that are good and that are bad and need correction. And same thing here in Thyatira. Jesus is walking through his church. He is walking through CBC today by way of his word and his spirit, and he is examining us, and he is, was exam like he was examining the church at Thyatira to commend the good qualities and to search out that which is displeasing to him. 
And so we want to look at this situation in Thyatira. We want to examine the historical situation. But then, like the other uh, messages we've heard, we want to apply that to our current situation. And how fitting it is as we think about this new venture of a merge, bringing two churches together, how glorious it is to then now reflect what are the things in the church that please Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the head of the church, and what things displease him. And that we might continue to grow in those things that bring him glory and put to death those things that do not. So we want to hear from Jesus who has eyes like a flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze. We want to respect his authority and bow before it. And one thing you might notice about these passages in Revelation is that they go completely contrary to the way Jesus is thought of in contemporary society. The kind of Jesus who says nothing harmful, nothing offensive, he's nice to everyone, Here Jesus is going to speak some very hard words to his church and to those who are in his church trying to infiltrate it with false teaching. But let's first look at what was good about this church. Jesus is going to give us several points of encouragement. He's going to encourage this church in many ways. Listen to what he says. He says in verse 19, he says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. I mean, this is a remarkable church. This would be a church that a mature Christian would probably find very attractive. He knows their works, that they are rich in good deeds, practical deeds to the saints and to others. They're motivated from a heart of love, unlike Ephesus, who had lost their first love. They have love for Christ. They have love for others. They're not flaunting their spiritual gifts like Corinth was. They have genuine love. And the word faith here, in the, in the original text, it has a definite article before that word faith, which leads some to say that this might be a reference to the, the fact that they're orthodox. They have orthodox teaching. They're holding to the faith. I think in the context that that's legitimate, but I think the emphasis here is on the fact that they are exercising genuine faith in their service, in their love, in their patient endurance. He's referring to the faith that they have in Christ. They're not depending on themselves. They're serving out of a love for Christ, a dependence upon Christ, and being filled by the Spirit. And not only that, but they're known for their service. This is referring to this, this word uh, throughout the New Testament refers to uh, practical deeds done to the saints, providing food and other things like this, other necessities. And so they're serving one another. The people in their congregation are cared for. They are loved. Their practical needs are being met and so on. And not only that, but they are enduring, which implies that there is some sort of persecution going on here, that there is trials that have beset this congregation or some in this congregation, and they are still holding on to their faith in Christ despite these troubling things, and they are commended for their patient endurance. And you're like, this phrase is sweet. Where, where is it? Where's their website? I would like to check it out. You, you move to a new city. You move to Thyatira. You get on the website. You get, on, you get on the web and you start looking up churches and you're like, dude, First Church of Thyatira, I think I might like to check that out. Works, love, faith, service, patient endurance, sign me up. And not only that, wait, it gets better. As you click through the website, it gets even better. 
Jesus says this, their latter works exceed the first. What does this mean? I think this means, the, the idea here is that not only are they rich in good works, but they're growing in quantity and quality of good works. They're growing spiritually. There's a kind of spiritual growth that's happening here. They are continuing to endure, not only endure, but they are continuing to produce fruit by the Spirit and that is actually growing in quality and quantity, perhaps even encouraged in, in light of this endurance and persecution. So this, at first, this, this, is, this is a good church. You're excited about this church. You're listening to some of the sermons online, and hey, pretty sweet. Verse 20, verse 20. But I have this against you. I have this against you. Remember, this is Jesus speaking. Jesus, the Lord of the church, speaking to his church, commending them on that which is good, and then saying this sharp word, I have this against you. If you have ears to hear, that kind of language from Jesus should pierce the heart. Jesus has something against us. I do not want Jesus to have anything against me or our church. He has something against Thyatira. And this in and of itself, we could stop right here and actually probably do an entire sermon on just that phrase because what you learn here is that you can be strong in multiple different areas in your church and yet to have something insidious growing inside and where Jesus has to come down and as we'll see, threaten judgment. Do not become complacent as a church, as a Christian, resting on your laurels and past achievements. There is much to be thankful for at CBC. Is there not? There was much to be thankful for in Thyatira. We're just given it, we're just told about it in verse 19. And yet Jesus has something against them, something so serious that he is going to have to threaten serious judgment. What does he have against them? Well, her name is Jezebel. Her name is Jezebel. And we see in verse 20 what he has against them. He says this, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Now, just, just a moment. Do you think that's a real name or not? Now, that's, that's the question in, in some of the commentaries in, the, in trying to figure out, is this a real name? Is this a, is this a real Jezebel? And some commentators will say, well, no person in their right mind is going to name their daughter Jezebel, especially after what we see of the woman named Jezebel in the Old Testament, who was the very personification of wickedness, right? Did, is this really, is her name really Jezebel? Well, I think there's evidence in the past, the, the last few passages we've seen that this name could be really her name. Jesus mentions the Nicolaitans. He mentions Balaam. He mentions Balak. He, he seems to be uh, naming these names. There's no reason to believe that this isn't. But it may not be. that It's, it, it's not really uh, to the point as much as it is to point out what she is in fact doing. Now, I just have to say, it could very well be that her name is Jezebel, and it's, it's not actually strange that someone would name their child Jezebel. 
or that they might have just a strange name. I have to tell you, uh, when I was first going to college, I came into contact with a, a false teacher of the worst sort, and just, just blatantly bad, false, just the worst. And his name, get this, was Darwin Fish. That was his birth certificate name. So, so, so you, think that's, you think that's funny? I grew up in Billings, Montana, and there was a priest in the area, and his name, not kidding, you can't make this stuff up, Father Heretic, that was his name. You're like, don't let, you don't let a heretic, well, anyways. So, so if her name was Jezebel, it just might have, might have been, but the point that Jesus is making here, he says he has something against this woman, they're going to know who she is. They know who she is this Jezebel. And what we have to see in this next sentence is she calls herself a prophetess, okay? So she is in the church. She's making claims of Christianity. She's making claims of speaking authoritatively from God, and she is self-appointed. Now, that in itself should be a warning to the people in Thyatira. When you have self-appointed teachers and leaders and not those who have been brought up naturally and organically and humbly by within the church and by the leadership, you should be ringing some bells because here, when you have self-appointed teachers, so often is the case that they are seeking things for themselves and their teaching will be corrupt. She calls herself a prophetess. And not only that, they say in verse 20, Jesus says in verse 20 that they are tolerating this woman, Jezebel. So she calls herself a prophetess and they're tolerating her. And this word tolerate basically means to leave alone. So I think the evidence is clear that this is a person within the church setting. Okay? Jesus says, this woman, Jezebel, she calls herself a prophetess and she is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food, sacrifice to idols. First question we need to ask, interpretive question we need to ask, is this real sexual immorality? Now, that is an interpretive question. You you might think, some of you might think, well, it clearly says it right there. Well, there's evidence in Revelation that this this word can be used symbolically to to refer to kind of a spiritual adultery, and that kind of usage has precedent in the Old Testament. But immediately, in the immediate context, in in verses 12 and following, there's discussion about, I believe, was it J.R. last week? You, did you preach that? Sweet. All right. Um, that there's, there's evidence here that the sexual immorality referred to in verses 13 and following was actual sexual immorality. Let me just read it for you. I have a few things against you that there are some who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. And that's likely has a, is, is referring to or alluding to uh, a chapter in Numbers where they're in fact, e- the Israel is in fact guilty of committing sexual immorality. And not only that, but this word here, here uh, translated as sexual immorality is porneia, and it's used almost universally throughout the New Testament to refer to actual committing of sexual sin. So I take this to be 
that yes, what, what is happening here is that there's this false teacher within the church that is persuading professing believers to commit sin of a sexual nature. And we're going to come back to that because that's important. We need to apply that to our present situation. But let's, let's not get too ahead of ourselves. What about meat sacrificed to idols? That, that should strike you as odd because you know that in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, Paul says that there's nothing inherently wrong with eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols in that an idol is nothing. The meat cannot be inherently changed or modified in some sort of spiritual way if it was sacrificed to an idol. An idol is nothing. God created meat. So if your conscience does not bother you, you are free to eat meat because the earth is the Lord and all it contains and that meat cannot be changed inherently. It's not going to somehow infect you spiritually if you ingest it because there's some sort of spiritual taint in it because it's meat for crying out loud. However, Paul also says that there's a way of eating meat sacrificed to idols like in a worship service for an idol where if you eat, were eat, to eat that meat, you would actually be condoning the worship and you'd actually be having communion with a demon because the demon is what is really behind that, that idol. So if you eat the meat in such a way that you condone false worship, that is wrong, Although even though that meat is meat. So there's a way of eating meat sacrificed to idols that is truly wrong and dishonors the Lord. So what I think we have happening here is that you have uh, this woman who is in the church who is persuading believers to engage in some sort of ritual, some sort of worship of idols that also involves this eating of meat sacrificed to idols and potentially also sexual immorality. And this wasn't uncommon. As we know in, in first the letters to the Corinthians, this kind of thing was not uncommon back then where you would have worship services that would, would involve outright acts of immorality. One historical argument based on what was happening in Thyatira during this time is that there were this kind of system of guilds, right? You would be a certain kind of craftsman and you would belong to a guild that was particular to your craft. And each guild would have its sponsor deity. And in order to keep your clientele, in order to bless your industry, your craft, you would want to engage in worship services for your sponsor deity. And guess what would happen if you didn't? You wouldn't have any more clients. So one argument suggests that what was happening here is you have a false teacher who's coming in saying things like, hey, an idol's nothing. The earth is the Lord and all it contains, right? So listen, the Lord wants you to provide for your family. And so it, you're not really, you, you, you can engage in these worship services and these, these worship, idol worship services and you can eat the food and you can kind of have your hands kind of, your fingers crossed behind your back. You're not really worshiping. You can engage in this kind of thing and not be sinning. Keep your clientele and then go back and worship in regular service. You can engage in this kind of economic 
kind of expediency, you might say, because you can do it without sinning. If that were the case, then we would need to step back and say how easy it is, and we know this inherently, I think, how easy it is to be caught up in spiritual compromise when your economic security is at stake. That could have been what was happening here with this kind of teaching, this kind of compromise. Even if we're not able to discern that with certainty, we know that there's a principle at work that we can. Namely this, false teachers will often twist clear biblical truth in order to draw Christians into sin. Even, listen, even in churches that are otherwise strong and vibrant. And where such teaching is allowed to exist without confrontation, Jesus will bring judgment. Now, we've already mentioned that this word sexual immorality uh, can be translated fornication, immorality. It's the word porneia. And it doesn't just encompass some aspects of sexual sin. It is the universal kind of umbrella for all perversions of God's beautiful gift of human sexuality. It covers everything throughout the, the New Testament. And let's just think for a moment how this could be happening in our current setting. How could this kind of thing happen? What, what, could, a, what could a teacher say to persuade people? Well, I'm going to give you some general thoughts, and then we're going to move to more specific ones. And, and I don't want to do this. I, I actually don't like doing it. I prefer not to do it. But I'm going to have to name some names. So let's think of some general kind of examples. Someone might be able to say this. God created sexual desire. You two love each other. You're going to get married soon. God's not really too, going to be too concerned or too upset if you engage in sexual intimacy before marriage. Okay? Could be one subtle argument that could persuade and lead people into sexual sin with a muffled or even justified conscience. Or you could be more, a little more creative, kind of touching on what's happening in contemporary society. society. God created sexual desire. It is unhealthy to rep repress God-given desire. And besides, worrying about premarital sexual activity isn't as important as serving the poor, helping the homeless, social justice and political activism, and so on. You see how subtle and insidious that is? It's interesting that the thing that Jesus is upset about here is something that our society says is no big deal at all. And that the church seems to be listening more and more to that idea and saying, it's, ah, let's not get so bent out of shape. There are bigger issues in the church than sexual immorality. Apparently not. Apparently not. The protection of the beauty of the gift of sexuality is of utmost priority for Jesus Christ and his church. Why? Why? Because it reflects his relationship with his church. The faithfulness, the intimacy, the protection, the security of that covenant relationship where the 
husband and wife give themselves freely to one another in joy, in safety, it is of utmost priority for Jesus. And that is why he is upset about this particular situation. Now, I do want to mention some contemporary examples, particularly in the area of homosexual sin, because this is something that is being touched upon constantly in our society and and by the church. And there are those who either are presently calling themselves evangelicals or in the past have called themselves evangelicals or are now saying they're no longer evangelical, who have had quite the influence in the church. And we, if we're going to follow through with what Jesus is talking about here, we must be aware of what is going on. Listen to this statement from, a, this is someone who is formerly an evangelical, say they're not an evangelical anymore, they, they deconverted, they would still profess Christ, but not in an, with an evangelical flavor. But they've written things like this. Remember, incredibly persuasive, incredibly influential. First of all, they write, first of all, the Christian community is not going to reach a consensus on gay marriage. This is a fact. Thousands of churches and millions of Christ followers faithfully read the scriptures and with thoughtful and academic work come to different conclusions on homosexuality. Godly, respectable leaders have exegeted the Bible and there's absolutely not unanimity in its interpretation. In italics, there never has been. Historically, Christian theology has always been contextually bound and often inconsistent with itself, an inconvenient truth we prefer to selectively explain. And now that sounds incredibly sophisticated and thoughtful. The problem is, is not only is it full of logical fallacy, but it's simply historically not true. And yet what this can do, and we're going to read another one from somebody else that is even more forceful, but what this can do is this can begin to justify the conscience of those who are presently struggling with this issue to then engage in immorality with a conscience that has been dampened. Let's listen to this next one. That first one was from a woman named Jen Hatmaker. The second one is from a a young man named Matthew Vines. In his book entitled God and the Gay Christian, He argues this. This is the argument of his book. He says it right up front. Christians who affirm the full authority, this is what he's arguing, okay? This is what his whole book sets out to prove. He considers himself someone who affirms the full authority of Scripture. He says this, quote, Christians who affirm the full authority of Scripture can also affirm committed monogamous same-sex relationships. He's not just talking about friendships. He is talking about romantic relationships. I'll read it again. Christians who affirm the full authority of Scripture can also affirm committed monogamous same-sex relationships relationships. Now this book, the reason I bring it up is because this book has been tremendously popular and widely touted as the authoritative word on this issue. It has had wide influence. Again, this book is largely an exercise in logical fallacies, historical revisionism, taking multiple biblical passages out of context but it is t- uh, statements like this one and that earlier one we read from Jen Hatmaker that allows professing Christians to justify sexual immorality, to partake in that which Scripture forbids, 
with a muffled or even justified conscience. This kind of teaching is what literally leads people to do what Jesus is condemning in this passage. And it's happening in the church today, and it's having massive influence. Let me just, let me just be real frank with us. That kind of teaching from Jen Hatmaker and Matthew Vines can find no quarter at CBC or anything like it. Let me just be as equally as clear. This does not mean that if you are presently ensnared in sexual sin, that you cannot find forgiveness in Christ because you absolutely can. The gospel is open to those who want to turn from their sin. You can find forgiveness in cleansing in the gospel. Jesus Christ has paid for all sin to release you from the bondage of sexual sin. By God's grace, I know many people who have experienced this very thing, I being one of them. So this is in no way suggesting that you are somehow condemned if you, can, if, if you are struggling with these sins. You are condemned if you fail and refuse to repent. And it's one thing to come alongside someone who is struggling with these things. It's an, another thing altogether for someone to be teaching these kinds of things. And what Jesus is getting after here is he's saying, if there is this kind of there is this kind of teaching and you're tolerating it, you need to get this Jezebel out. And you can no longer tolerate that kind of teaching. Scripture is serious. Scripture is serious about this issue of sexual purity. Serious. I want to give you a quote. This is from someone I, I'm not going to put in the same category as these people because this is from, a, I'm not going to name this person because I believe they are an otherwise faithful pastor. But this is how I believe that some of the portions of the church have compromised like Thyatira was doing, perhaps listening too much to the world. One person has said it like this, we ought to whisper about what the Bible whispers about referring to sexual sexuality and ought to shout about what it shouts about. And the Bible appears to whisper when it comes to sexual sin compared to when it shouts about materialism and religious pride. That's coming from a pastor. And otherwise, in my judgment, a faithful pastor. But what is happening? Do you hear the subtle compromise? Is it true that Scripture whispers about sexual immorality? Just whisper. Does it whisper? It's serious. It keeps people from repenting because they love their sin. The Bible does not whisper. It's serious, but you can be forgiven of your sin if you come to Christ and turn from that sin. He has paid for all of your sin. He has borne the wrath of God for you. You can come now and turn to Christ, receive his spirit, and now begin a life of putting sin to death, particularly sexual immorality. Well, Jesus is upset because there is a false teacher in the church in Thyatira saying the exact opposite of what I just got done saying. And she is destroying 
souls. Isn't that what false teaching does? I mean, you just, you just might, you might be ready. You might have some doctrine fatigue. You might have some theology fatigue because you're thinking, what's the constant focus on sound doctrine, good doctrine, good theology? Well, it's because good theology is what enables you to believe in God and to be saved and to grow in sanctification. False teaching, false doctrine, bad theology weakens your faith and ultimately can destroy your soul. All right. What about idolatry? We can't spend too much time on this, but there's some kind of idolatry going on here, likely. And how can we, how can we apply this? Well, just a couple of thoughts. Is this, can this be happening today, this kind of persuading uh, professing Christians to, to fall into idolatry? Well, I think it can. You have some uh, professing evangelicals who say that there's no real material difference between the Protestant church and the Roman Catholic church. And what that has done is that's persuaded people to actually engage in the, the idolatry of the Roman Catholic mass. I think those kinds of things are happening. And that's being tolerated within the church. That could be tolerated here. I hope not. Paul identified greed as a contemporary form of idolatry. And so you could also have the, the encroaching of the wealth, health, and prosperity gospel, which is so attractive because it says Jesus died not only for your spiritual riches, but also for your earthly riches. And if you don't have earthly riches and steady health, it's because you lack faith. And, and that kind of teaching can subtly creep in and begin to make Jesus sound more like a magic genie than the Lord of the universe who does whatever he pleases and gives to whom, whoever he wants, whenever he wants. So this kind of idolatry can happen when we're, we're tempted to, to be expedient in order to protect our economic situation. Well, here's the good news. Apparently not everyone was falling into this... Uh, this um, Sin. Look at verse 22. He says, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. Look at what he says following that. We're going to go back to that. He says, But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching. So we're now we're going to go back. We'll go back and, and, and look specifically what Jesus is threatening here. But there were some who were not taken up by this teaching. They're not being persuaded. But look at what Jesus says in, in verse 21. He says, I gave her time to repent. What? I'm sorry. So this woman is ravaging the church and, and you gave her time to what? I mean, I want to bring the gauntlet down now. Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying, I gave her time to repent. I just, that just stuns me. But what does that teach us? It teaches that for all the countless false teachers that are out there right now, the reason they're breathing right now, and the reason why they're able, even able to get on the TV and to spew their venom and, and get up the next day is because Jesus is giving them time to repent. Time to repent. Sadly, what happens so often is the case is they turn out like this Jezebel who refuses to repent. Time is up for her. He says this, 
She refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a sickbed. This likely has reference to actual sickness or even death. So Jesus is going to bring a very strong temporal judgment. He's going to kill some people. Oh, man, that, that's, that's harsh. Jesus loves the purity of his church. Jesus loves the holiness of his church. Jesus loves the, purity, the sexual purity of his people. He will not let anything come between himself and his church. He is going to bring some serious devastation. Behold, I'll throw her on a, a sickbed and those who follow her. So she's able to gain some, an influence in the following, and she's going, he's going to judge them significantly with death, with tribulation, even great tribulation, which could be referring to uh, future eschatological situation or just present trials eventually leading to death. Look at that sentence. Unless they repent of her works. <laughs> the door's still open to repent. Incredible. In the passage where Jesus is saying some very hard things, he's giving them time to repent. What's the word to us today? Well, we've heard, I think, a lot to us today. But the word to us today is, as I look out at CBC, and even as I have opportunity to work with the young adults, and I see a lot of good things like Jesus is mentioning here in verse 19. A lot to be thankful for. It's amazing how the Spirit is at work among the people at CBC, loving one another, caring for one another, meeting practical needs, studying Scripture together, finding ways to evangelize and meet the needs of those outside the church. It's, just, it's a glorious thing. The message to us is, do not let this tolerance of false teaching creep in unchecked and unchallenged. You know, you might be thinking, well, Derek, this is just, this is just for pastors, right? This is for, that's your job. You stand up there and you make sure that all the teaching is clear. Jesus is speaking to the whole church, isn't he? He's speaking to you. He's speaking to to you to not allow false and immoral teaching to gain a foothold within the church, among your friends, among your brothers and sisters. Now, I titled the message, The Danger of Spiritual Compromise and the Reward for Perseverance. We're going to have to do the latter half real quickly here. So put on your seatbelts. Jesus is threatening judgment. But in verse 24, he says, To the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, which could refer to what Jezebel was teaching. And some have suggested the idea here is that perhaps she was persuading people, like, in order to really defeat sin, you have to know it as deeply as possible. In order to understand Satan, you need to un know his ways as deeply as possible. So trying to persuade them to engage in in um, kind of uh, things that you would otherwise be totally forbidden so that you can get to know the, the deep things of Satan. Well, not everybody in Thyatira was doing that. And so he says to them, to you, I do not lay upon you any other burden. But verse 25, only hold fast to what you have until I come. So they weren't to let up or to ease up. They're to hold fast to what they had. They're rejecting this teaching. They're also, you can assume that he's referring to their works and love and faith and service and patient endurance and so on. But look at verse 26. To the one who conquers and who keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Now Jesus says something similar to every single church. To the one who conquers, this is 
to the church in Ephesus, to the one who conquers, I will grant to the eat of the tree of life. Smyrna, to the one who conquers, will not be hurt by the second death. In our passage, the one who conquers will have opportunity to rule with Christ. Is this optional? Is this just a heavenly bonus? Now, that's the way some have interpreted this, saying it's not necessary. Some Christians are going to conquer and overcome. Some aren't. Some are going to kind of fall away. But those who persevere and and conquer, they're going to get these special bonuses. These passages, each one is talking about future eschatological blessings that are nothing less than salvation and eternal life. In other words, you don't, over, you don't overcome, you don't go to heaven. You're not a Christian. How else, why else would he say that you wouldn't be hurt by the second death? See, Jesus is saying that true believers overcome. There are some in Thyatira who are succumbing to this teaching. There are some in Thyatira who are not succumbing to this teaching. Teaching. There are some whom you know right now, there are former members of this church who are not presently overcoming. They have no assurance whatsoever that they are going to heaven. It's not as though they're going to be without some sort of heavenly bonus. They're showing that they are not presently overcoming and will not receive the inheritance of eternal life. This is not salvation by works. This is simply the reality that believers persevere. Believers overcome, and they inherit, in this case here, authority to rule the nations alongside of Jesus, which is also what I believe he's referring to when he says he's going to give them the morning star. This is tied up with the the messianic kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth when we rule with Christ on earth and forever, which also helps us battle this compromise, doesn't it? If it is the case that Thyatira is, the, the church in Thyatira is having problems with succumbing to compromise because it was going to hurt their financial situation, their economic situation, then this kind of promise answers that problem directly, doesn't it? Because Jesus is saying, despite your situation right now, there's coming a time when you will inherit the entire world and reign with me. You'll never have want for anything again, present house prices in the Bay Area notwithstanding. Right? Isn't that how Jesus is now battling that for us? He's, he's saying that you will rule with me. You don't need to manipulate situations right now. You don't need to yield to compromise to secure your financial situation. Remain faithful and you will inherit the world. So as we close, let's just consider Creekside. Be wary of compromise. There are so many things to be thankful for, so many good things that are happening here. Let's all be on the alert for each other, for compromised, false, insidious, subtle teaching that draws us away from the clear and pure teaching of God's word and leads us into sin and compromise. Let's have the courage to confront it Let's have the courage to confront the false teachers, to come alongside those who are being 
confused by the false teachers, and to be careful to preserve the unity and the purity of Christ's church. If we, if we don't, Jesus threatens judgment. But to those who overcome, we will rule together with Christ in a new kingdom. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that Jesus does have eyes like a flame of fire. He sees through us. He sees through our facade. He sees everything. God, will you help us to truly repent? Help us to be aware of any kind of teaching or teacher in our midst is, is compromising the truth. God, let us, let's not be heresy hunters, but let us be those who, who are aware of the kind of teaching that destroys so that we might root it out of the church for the love of our neighbor, for the love of our brother and sister, and for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.